Well, it's me again. So uh, good to see you all. Thank you guys so much for, for gathering. Again, if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, my name is Jamie, and it's my joy to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. It's a joy to be able to open up God's Word with you all. Uh, we are in week 13 now of this series called Creation and Chaos, where we're looking at our origin story, which means we're looking at the opening chapters of the beginning of the Bible. It's Genesis 1 through 11. We've got a couple of weeks uh, left in that this series before we get to Advent. All right, show of hands. How many of you are on like full-on Christmas mode though at this point? Right, okay, there you go. Uh, thank you for identifying yourself. Uh, we have, like I said, just a couple of weeks left here. We are nearing the end of a story that we're going to pick up at the end of Genesis 8 and into Genesis 9, which is the story of Noah and the ark. And so last week, uh, Rusty preached and did a great job of kind of preaching through this long text. It was about like, what did it look like when Noah and his family and the animals all went on the boat in this act of God's grace and his mercy um, and God's sense of irony. Uh, my family and I, we were celebrating my parents' 50th uh, wedding anniversary. They took uh, the extended family uh, on a three-night uh, cruise. We'd never been on a cruise. So while y'all were learning about knowing the ark, we were floating adrift out in the Atlantic, uh, but we have returned um, and it was a great time, but great to be back with our church family this morning. And so friends, I wanna invite you as we look at what's happening now as the, the floodwaters have receded and Noah and the family and the animals disembark. They, they come off of the, the ark. We wanna see what God does next and what Noah does next and what that has to say about your life and my life. And so I wanna read for you Genesis 8, beginning of verse 20 through chapter nine, verse 17. So use one of the Bibles in the pews, use the Bible you brought, scan the QR code, some way, somehow figure out how to get the scriptures in front of you. Uh, this is the only thing that'll be perfect about our day today is looking at God's word. You don't need my thoughts. You don't need my takes on this. We need to hear from God. And he's given us his word that he speaks to us. And so as you turn there, if you would, please stand if you're able. Um, and I want to read this text this morning, beginning in Genesis chapter eight, verse, we'll pick it up in verse 20. It says, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, they shall not cease. Now chapter nine, beginning in verse one. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered and every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. For whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Verse eight, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. 
I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. And I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Friends, what I want us to focus on for a few moments together this morning is just this beautiful theme, this beautiful thread that runs throughout the entirety of the scriptures. It's highlighted in unique ways here, but it's about God's favor. It's about God's grace. It's this unmerited favor that we have because of a God who is loving and he's kind. And he set his favor on Noah and his family. It's not because Noah was awesome and that Noah always did the right things, but rather that God set his favor upon him. And so we're gonna see in this text for a moment that we are saved by grace, that we have a calling of grace, and that we have a sign of God's grace that he gives to us as we talk about this bow that God puts in the, the clouds. And we'll, so we'll look at that at the conclusion of our time. But first, in these last couple of verses, these last few verses of chapter eight, it's reminding us that we are saved by grace. And so as Noah and his family, right? Like they emerge off of the boat. They've been adrift for a long time. The waters have receded and they come off of the boat. And at one level, it is just a reminder that it's God's grace that protected them. It's God's grace that preserved them. It's God's grace throughout this entire thing as all of creation, all of the cosmos was literally like collapsing in on itself that God saw fit to spare Noah and his family because he's not done with his work. What we're gonna see this morning, friends, is this is a God who continually is looking for partners to join him in this renewal of all things, that this world matters, that God has not given up on his plan. He is the God of second chances and third chances. He's the God who continually showers us with his grace. So you've got stuff that you brought in here this morning. I've got stuff that I brought in here this morning. There's a word sometimes that we feel from the enemy of condemnation. That is from the pit of hell. That is not God's word to us. If we're in Christ, he might bring conviction to us and that's a gift and lead us in repentance. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's a story of God's grace. And we're reminded of this, friends, all the way back at the end of Genesis chapter eight, as they come off of the boat, it says this, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, at one level, this is important because this is a response of gratitude. I mean, think about it. Noah, the very first thing that he does, he doesn't get off the boat and think, whew, all right, nothing is left. I got to, I gotta go like cultivate the land, all right? I gotta start growing crops. I gotta go build a house, all right? We need to like figure out what's going on. His first thing, like he gets off of the boat and the very first thing is I'm gonna build an altar and I'm gonna take some of the animals that God had told him to take into the boat as an act of obedience. And he's gonna offer this burnt offering. His response is worship. 
I pray for a lot of things to happen in my life. And by God's grace, right, there are things that I'm like, that's a very direct answer to prayer. And I wish that in those moments, it would hit me that I was like, God, thank you, I praise you. But so often, perhaps you can relate to this, God gently in his spirit will nudge me and remind me like, oh, hey, you know that answer to prayer? You know the way that you've been praying and those things and how I met you in that, even if it's in ways that you didn't expect or were different than what you wanted, but he did show up. Do I respond and worship? Do I just forget? Do I move on to the next thing? My propensity is just to keep moving on and just keep asking, but never to take time to pause and to reflect and to worship. And that's why this rhythm that we gather on a Sunday morning is so key in our life because it, it centers us on what is important. It reminds us, oh, we have so much to be thankful for, even in the midst of hardship and of pain. And so Noah responds. And it tells us that he offers this burnt offering. And so at one level, it is a response of gratitude. He's been saved. He was spared, him and his family. So praise God. But friends, there's also something else more that's going on here. Because one of the things we need to think about is this. If you were to answer the question like, hey, like what emerged from the ark, right? We would know some of the answers. We would know like, well, Noah did and his wife did and his sons and their wives and all the animals, right? There's a lot of animals that emerged uh, from, from that boat. But the very next couple of verses also tell us, it says, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, so he makes a promise. We'll come back to the pleasing aroma in a moment. I'll never again curse the ground because of man. And he says this, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So yes, Noah walked off the boat. Yes, his wife walked off the boat, the animals, his sons, the daughters, these people that have been spared. But sin and brokenness, the curse emerged from the boat. Even in the destruction of everything, that did not go away. And so yes, Noah's first response is one of worship out of gratitude, but there's keys in this text when it says a burnt offering, it's speaking of a, a specific offering that is not where like a priest would take something like an animal and offer it up and then offer partly up to God and the rest that would cook, he would enjoy for him and his family out of provision and for maybe his town and his, his neighbors. And that was allowed. There are certain offerings that that was how the priest would do it. It's part of God's setup. But when it speaks of a burnt offering, what it's speaking of is the whole thing is being consumed. The whole thing is being offered up to God as this act of surrender, like God, it all belongs to you. It's all by your grace. And it also speaks the language that is spoken of here, which is a pleasing aroma. As we understand likely that Moses is penning these words who also would have been responsible for writing portions of the law, things that we get like in the book of Leviticus. I know it's everybody's favorite book and you probably have it memorized, but I'll just read a couple of verses for you out of Leviticus chapter one. This same language shows up and it's speaking of atonement. It's speaking of a sacrifice that would be used as a substitute. What we have at the very outset as they come off the boat, yes, it's gratitude, but more importantly, the big thing that's happening here is God is saying, I'm making these promises because you have responded in a way, all right, that you have offered this up, that there's a substitute. There's an animal that bloodshed happens to pay, like to cover your sins. And because of that, because there is that act, because there is that provision, God responds as I'm never going to destroy the earth. There's these rhythms that are gonna be restored. Leviticus 1 verses four and nine says this, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. So the priest would literally there as a representative of the people would lay his hands on the head of this animal that's just about to be sacrificed and offered as a way to symbolize 
All of the sin, the shame, the brokenness, the rebellion is being placed on this animal. And that animal is gonna die as a substitute for God's people. And it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And if we drop down to verse nine, the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So there is an act of atonement that's happening here. It's reminding us right at the beginning, there's kind of these bookends that we'll see as we talk about being saved by grace and the sign of God's grace. Don't forget this idea of substitution, of God making provision, God making a way. It's not just something that shows up in the New Testament. There's this thread, there's this story of God's grace through and through. And then God makes these promises in light of that. So while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, they shall not cease. These rhythms are gonna continue. Now, as we see that, where we go in chapter nine then is God invites us. There's a calling of grace that we're gonna see. And it's specifically in here, friends, that there's some language that's gonna be used that if you've been part of this series before or through some of the, the weeks prior, I hope that there's something as I read it that jumps off the page. It's like, oh, I think we've heard some of this before. It's reminding us that God has not given up on his plans, that God cares deeply about you and me and his image bearers, but he also cares deeply about this whole world that he has made. And so let's look at this, verses nine or chapter nine, verses one to seven, this calling of God's grace. And it begins by saying, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now that should be something likely that if you've been here for a few weeks, you'd be like, oh, I think we've talked about that before. We've heard that before. Where does that go to? And it takes us back to the very opening chapter. In fact, we don't have time to get into all of this, but there's some really fascinating work being done by scholars that would showcase for us like throughout the flood account that as Noah is getting ready to come off of the boat, the details that are given are God's way of saying, of highlighting each day of creation that we read in Genesis 1. We don't have time to get into all that this morning, but just know this, like there's a very much, there's an intentionality here. And when we get to this spot, this is this reminder of like, hey, don't forget where you've come from. God is a God of second chance. God is a God who's saying, I know there's sin. I know there's brokenness. I have saved you by grace. It's unmerited favor. And know this, I'm not starting a new plan now. Like I've got new ideas. I'm scrapping that one. He's saying, no, I'm doing this recommissioning. That's what's taking place here. And so God says, be fruitful, multiply. And this is the exact wording of Genesis 1 verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You hear that language, right? What's God doing? He's saying, I still got work for you to do. What was the calling in Genesis 1 is still the calling in Genesis 9. And it's still the calling for you and I in this place on November 12, 2023, right? This is the calling for those of us that, that are in Christ is to be fruitful and multiply. And part of the way we live that out is as the church, seeing new disciples being made, disciples making disciples. It's you and I going into our various spheres that God has strategically placed you. You live in a neighborhood, not by accident. You work in a particular workplace, not by accident. Go to a school, very specific school, not by accident. Have the friendships you do. All of those things are intentional by God to say, hey, I want to use you. 
to showcase what the dominion of God looks like. What does it look like when we're gladly surrendered like Noah who didn't hold anything back, but the burnt offering all being offered up to God. What would it look like to make our worship where our whole lives, we were saying we are getting to partner with God. God has not given up on his plan. Noah might be discouraged, his wife, his, his sons, daughters, like daughters-in-law, they might be discouraged. Like, oh, like, what are we gonna do? But God is like, no, I've got good work for you to do. But as we look at verses two to six, and we don't have time to do a, a deep dive into all of it, but as we just look back over that for just a moment, it speaks of fear, food, and, I th- and he speaks of our, our fellow man. He says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every uh, beast of the earth and uh, every bird of the heavens, right? And then every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And then he speaks of our fellow man. Like, why does God in the midst of this speak of the animals? And then even reference like people, um, someone killing another image bear. Well, I think there's two things that are happening. At one level, God is just showcasing for us. Yeah. There is a brokenness. It wasn't just Adam, or sorry, it wasn't just uh, Noah and his family that emerged, as I said, off of the boat, but sin also, the brokenness, the effects of the curse. Genesis 1.28, have dominion over all the animals. Seems like that would have been a little easier when you could actually like, just go hang out with the bear or the lion. And we're just like, yeah, it's not just a dog that's man's best friend. It's my bear right here, right? Like that seems like that was possible. That's how things were. But now it's like, no, those things have a fear of you and you should have a healthy fear of them. And there's gonna be this conflict. And the way to make sense of this, not just the brokenness, but also to see the beauty, the design, the the things that God still intends is we gotta drop down into the last section of verses for just a moment. Because what's so fascinating is in verses, as we get down to verses like um, really eight through 17, God speaks of a covenant and that shows up. It's not the only place that speaks of a covenant. It's a, it's a reoccurring theme throughout the scriptures, but it's always between God and a person or a community of people, but this is unique. So look with me at verse nine. It says this, the words up on the screen here as well. Behold, I established my covenant with you and your offspring. So far that fits the normal pattern, what we would expect. God saying, hey, Noah and your family, your offspring. Okay. But then he says this in verse 10, and with every living creature. And that and is huge. With every living creature that is with you, with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. Do you hear what God is saying? Multiply, have dominion. But he's saying, you were originally set up to be stewards and caretakers of this world. This whole world matters. God is interested in more than just the salvation of your soul, as important as that is. God's interested in the whole thing. So he's redeeming, he's restoring you and me and image bearers, making a way for us to the substitutionary work of Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice to be in right relationship. But he also isn't telling us just to sit back then and just let this earth just sort of burn. He's literally saying, no, this world matters. And our God is one day gonna come dwell with us. And so your work and your creativity and the art and everything that you create, all of it is loaded with significance. And so you're, space that you inhabit right now has eternal significance and consequences. And so what this is saying, it's fascinating, right? God is like, hey, I'm going to make a covenant, not just with you, but also with the birds. Like I care so much about them and the livestock and the beasts of the field. Verse 13, 
We'll talk about this more in a moment about the bow and the cloud and it shall be a sign. But look at this, between a covenant between me, we might expect him to say, and you know, but he says, and the earth. God cares so deeply about his world. He's making sure that Noah and his offspring, his, his fellow family, that they get it. Listen, it's not just about the preservation of humanity, but it's about God's renewing work in and through everything. Now, image bearers, fellow man, that's why he says he gets into this in verse six, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And he points this out, he says, for God made man in his own image. Like there's a significance about humanity. So he's not saying you are the same as the birds or the dog, you know, like, that's great. I'm glad you love your pet. But he's saying like, no, the people in your household, your friends, your neighbors, they're the image bearers. But don't allow that truth then to negate that the whole thing actually does matter. Maybe a way to think about it is this, are you caring for the earth? Are you stewarding this creation? And are you loving your neighbor? That's what's being pointed out here at the beginning of chapter nine. God is saying, it's gonna be a struggle. There's gonna be fear. There's gonna be conflict. There's gonna be battles. All these things are gonna take place, but don't think for a moment that it all doesn't matter to him. He's saying there's good work to do. And so are you caring? What would it look like for the church to be known as the ones who lead out in this? that we love people unconditionally the way that we have been so lavishly loved by God, that we care for this world because we're not believing the lie that it's all just gonna burn up one day, but rather we know, oh no, it's not that we're getting zapped up into the heaven, it's that God is gonna come down and dwell with us. There's gonna be new heavens and new earth. How might that affect the way that we think about the resources that we have? Would we actually care about this world that he's placed us in? Would it look like for the church to be people that say, oh, this is what it looks like to multiply and to have dominion is that we, we so care about the things that God cares about. God cared enough about this world that he made a covenant, not just with humanity, but with the earth. He's making promises there. C.S. Lewis in his great work, Mere Christianity, there's this section, I'm going to read this quote, and it's, it's dealing with this, this idea that there are some that don't really maybe rightly recognize what verses two to six are talking about here. Almost a lack of recognition that there's real goodness in the world, but also real evil, real brokenness. And if you don't recognize that there's real brokenness in this world, you can tend to, and he talks about like the pantheists and others that will tend to just equate like, oh, it's all God and I'm a God and you're a God and the tree's a God and the, the, the ocean is, and it's kind of all one together. And Lewis has some harsh words for that, even a word I've chosen not to use this morning because it's a family style service, but um, uh, you'll maybe see this in a moment, but here's what he says. If you do not take the distinction between good and bad very seriously, then it is easy to say that anything you find in the world is a part of God. The Christian replies, according to Lewis, don't talk such nonsense. For Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world, but it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made. And God insists and insists very loudly. Do you hear the argument sort of building? He's like, everyone pay attention to this on our putting them right again. 
We might expect him to say, I'm God putting it right again, which ultimately he is responsible. He's the one who has the power to do it, but he's looking for co-laborers. He's looking for participants. He's looking for partners in this renewal of all things on our putting them right again. So friends, you and I have good work to do. So we are saved by grace. We have a calling of grace. God being the God of second chances sends us out like he did to Noah as they came off the boat and says, hey, don't forget, like, What I said in Genesis chapter one, it still holds true. And us living today, it still holds true. That's part of what we get to celebrate even with baptism today is seeing more disciples being made. And then it's this bookend between verse one and verse seven and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So that calling is fueled by, and this is the last section, it's fueled by this sign of grace that God in his kindness comes to Noah and it's a sign that continues to this day. And it's meant to remind us of this thread, this storyline of God's grace, because it's about what God has done. And so as we look back over verses eight to 17, if we were to take the time right now, I'm not gonna read through it all again. I read it earlier, but as you glanced through that text, if you're still looking at it, one of the things I'd ask you to just look for is like, Where's the repetition? Where's the pattern? What are the things that are said over and over again? And so if you had some time to sort of circle things or highlight things, you'd probably notice like, oh, he speaks of this bow in the clouds. He speaks of that a few times, speaks of the earth. And that's all true. But there's one particular word in these verses that that God communicates, not once, not twice, but seven different times. In fact, it reads in a way, it's, it's kind of, kind of clunky if we're honest. It's like, okay, I get the point. Like, why do you keep repeating yourself? Like, I heard you is maybe how we can think of it. It's like, what is going on here? And the, the word is covenant. Seven times in these verses, God speaks of his covenant. Now, one of the things throughout this series, um, you, this probably, this probably a mixed bag. Some of you might really love this stuff. And for some of you are probably like, all right, Jamie, enough with the cultural history and the background and the things that were going on. I don't really care about the Mesopotamians, the Babylonians, the Sumerians. And then maybe there's a couple of you that are like, oh, we can be friends. So whatever, right? Um, but regardless of where you are on that spectrum, if you like that sort of stuff or not, I do want to share one more of those things because I think it brings this to light. Like if we hear what's going on with God using this word, it showcases something for us that is mind-blowing. It's something that would have been so unexpected that we can miss because we don't necessarily always think in the ancient kind of Near Eastern context where this is being written about in two. So here's the quick little history lesson as we look at this last section to help bring this to light. In that time and place, remember Moses is writing this, you would have had all these competing, you know, like nations and cultures. And what would happen this is not uncommon, right? There's lots of bloody battles that would take place and a king would t- send out his army and they would go. And if they were victorious, they would conquer, all right, this people. And obviously they would end up like killing a lot of the people, but there were some that would remain and they would bring them through a treaty. They would bring them under their rule and reign. And here was the technical term, all right? Here's where, if you like this sort of stuff, you can nerd out on it. You don't have to remember this, but it was called, and there's historical documents that talk about these treaties that have been found from that time and that place thousands of years ago. That's a suzerain vassal treaty. Okay. Suzerain is simply a way to say who's the sovereign and who's the subordinate. 
And so the sovereign king, the conquering king, the suzerain would come in and would say, okay, you are my subordinate. I've conquered you. If you want any chance of flourishing in this life, if you want blessings, then you're going to have to listen to me. You're going to have to come under my rule and reign. You're going to have to obey. And so they would formulate these treaties. And the sovereign one would say to the vassal, say to the subordinate, if you follow X, Y, and Z, things will go well for you. There'll be blessings. If you disobey, if you try and do things on on your own, if you go against my will, against my decrees, there will be curses. You will be destroyed. And then there was a sign typically given of the covenant. You can think of a sign like a a wedding band, right? It's a a symbol. It's a sign of a a commitment, of of a covenant, right? And so this was a regular practice in that time and that place in in the ancient world. What we have here, all right, is one of these treaties. God is clearly the suzerain. God is clearly, he is the sovereign. And we, represented by Noah and his family and all of humanity, like we as his people, we are the vassal. And now we need to ask, okay, well, how does this suzerain How does this sovereign, how does this God, how does this victorious king act toward his people? And the key to understanding that is what is introduced in these verses. And so in verse 12, it says, God said, this is the sign of this covenant. Again, he says that covenant over and over again. And keep that in mind. It's a sovereign or superior to a subordinate. This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Verse 13, here's the sign. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, depending on what translation you have, at one level, the way we're supposed to understand this is this, right? It's speaking of a rainbow, like the sign of the covenant, the Noahic covenant that is introduced here by God as the sovereign, as the suzerain, it's like, hey, when you see after the storm has passed, all right, and that the storm is moving on and the sunlight's beginning to come through and you see that rainbow, that is a sign of my grace, my mercy. It's a reminder of God is sovereign and he is in control. And so we're meant to understand it that way. Now, in the Hebrew, there was this, it, there isn't our translation that we're using here. The one I'm using says bow is because there was no word for rainbow. It's actually speaking of something else. Like what is the bow itself communicating? And so, yes, it's fine to think about it. That, that is the sign that it's referring to. But the language here of bow means something very specific. So here's what I want you to picture. This is a weapon of warfare. This is a bow and arrow. It is calling to mind like this sort of image. If you ever shot a bow and arrow, right? And you're pulling that back, like what is happening to the bow? Like it's beginning to, it has that curve. That's the imagery here. And so when we ask ourselves the question about like, how does this suzerain act? How does this king act? Well, he's telling us anytime you see that bow, Anytime you see that arch, that multicolored arch in the sky, when you see that rainbow at one level, it's telling you this, that God has hung up his bow. That he has made promises about never another judgment of water to come. That God is saying, I I have ceased from this. He has hung up his bow and it's a reminder that there's going to be peace and that the earth and things are going to be able to flourish once again, that there's this new creation happening. And that's a beautiful picture, but friends, it goes even further. 
this is what I think helps this passage make our hearts really sing. So hold on for just a couple more moments and think on this. When you and I see this in the sky, right? If that's a picture of, if that literally is a bow and it's referencing a weapon of warfare. And now we think about every suzerain king would say, if you obey, there's gonna be blessings. But if you disobey, if you go against my will, what is coming? There's curses coming for you. It's literally a way of pointing the bow at the vassal and saying, if you mess up, this is what's coming for you. But what does our God do? What is our God setting in the sky as a reminder? Is the bow pointing down at you and I as the rebels, as the ones who continue to mess up, who are part of that sin disembarking from the bow, part of the brokenness, part of the rebellion? Is it pointing toward us or what is it doing spatially or is it pointing toward him? When you and I see the rainbow in the sky, it is reminding us of this astounding fact. There would be no other suzerain, there'd be no other superior, no other sovereign that would ever say, if you disobey, I'm taking it out on me. No, the thing that would make sense is I'm taking it out on you. But our God shows up and says, I'm making a covenant with you. I'm gonna bring blessing. And when the curses come, because they are gonna come, because you're gonna rebel, rather than point it at you, I'm gonna point it at myself. This is why Paul would write in Galatians chapter three of what Jesus has done, that God himself came down in flesh and had the bow of God's wrath pointed at him. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. As we read during our assurance of pardon this morning, this great text out of 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin that Jesus was that substitute. He was the one, like Noah, putting his hands on the head of the animal. And all of our rebellion, all of our sin, all the punishment that we deserve was placed on Jesus so that in him, everything could flow towards us. We might become the righteousness of God. Friends, this is reminding us that we have a God who willingly, gladly for the joy that was set before him says, point the bow at me. He's not taking you out. He was taking us so that you and I could be brought in. Think about what fuels our calling to, to go and make disciples, to multiply, to care for the earth, to love our neighbor. It's when we know we've been so radically loved that the bow that should have been shot out at you and me was instead pointed at, not, more, not only pointed at, but struck God himself in Jesus. And so as Paul would write in 2 Timothy, picking up on this theme that we see in verse 15, where, where God writes, I will remember. So when he sees this, he's like, I remember my covenant. Even when you forget, I will be faithful. 2 Timothy 2, we'll close with this. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. Like we get to be part of this calling if we deny him, meaning if we deny his grace, he will deny us. But for those that carry on, it says, even if we are faithless, because those times do come. It says he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. His character, his very nature is one of faithfulness. And you have to look no further than the cross where the bow of God's wrath was pointed at Jesus, God's own son, and he died in your place in my place. And as a sign of God's covenant, not only the rainbow, but we get this meal that we get to participate in. And so I'm gonna pray for us. The worship team's gonna come back up. 
but we have an opportunity to participate in this meal together as a sign of the grace that we've received. So let me pray and then I'll give us some instruction. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy, your compassion. Thank you that you've moved toward us. Thank you that you've put your bow in the sky. And thank you that you did not point it at us, but Jesus, that you were willing to have it pointed at you in our place. May that reality encourage us today to see God that you're the God of second chances. You're the God of grace and of mercy of all of this just unmerited kindness that you show us. May this meal we're about to participate in, may it nourish us, may it be a means of your grace to sustain us in this calling that you've given to us. May we be your people, God, for your glory, for the good of our neighbor and for our great joy, we pray in Christ's name, amen.